Welcome to Authentic Living with Roxanne, a place where we have conscious conversations about things that really matter in our lives. And now, here's your host, Roxanne Durhaj. Thanks for tuning in again. Uh, it's Roxanne from The Authentic Living with Roxanne. Um, today I have a special guest, Erica Casperson. Hi, Erica. How are you? Hi, Roxanne. How are you? I'm wonderful. Awesome. So Erica and I have uh, known each other. Goodness, I'm going to think it's almost it's close to 15 years or so when we actually met, I think, um, through the, health, the Niagara Health System uh, when Erica was uh, with, the, with the health system at that time. So Erica has a unique background, and um, I'm going to read a little bit about her bio, and then we're going to jump into some of her expertise. Um, she has a background in, in kinesiology and also in uh, qualifying as a psychotherapist and has extensive back, background in, in uh, health and wellness. So um, Erica's passion and purpose to is, is to inspire health, healing, wellness, and resilience for those dedicated women and men and women who serve and sacrifice for the public good. Whether it's healthcare professionals, armed forces, personnel, EMS, firefighters, police, or those in leadership positions, these professionals face a variety of demands and intense stress, placing them at risk for chronic uh, disease, stress-related illnesses, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, compassion fatigue, and burnout. She has some scientifically validated techniques uh, that she uses for self-care, self-expression, uh, wellness, and resilience. Her hopeful, powerful, and inspiring programs are custom designed for each group, inspiring hope, healing, renewed joy for life, and passion for service. That sounds awesome, Erica. Thank you. It is awesome work. <laughs> so is there anything that... Um, that uh, wasn't mentioned in the bio that you'd like to, to mention with people uh, listening or viewing today? I think that really summarized it quite well. Um, one of the things I feel very grateful for is to be able to support those individuals. Um, a big focus on healthcare right now uh, that, again, that really give a lot of themselves, their body, mind, heart, and spirit to the work that they do and um, can be adversely impacted. And so to be able to support well-being for groups that have such a profound impact on care and service to others, it's, it's quite a, it's really cool. It's a profound privilege for sure. So let's talk a little bit about your path. I know when you and I met, I was um, with a health and wellness consulting firm and you were with a hospital. And I know you're also, uh, you have extensive um, expertise working with hospitals and looking at the element of chronic stress. I, I, think that's the, I think that's the pebble in the rough that I see. You, I see it a lot in my consulting and you've lived in that world in lots of different mm -hmm. sectors. So let's talk a little bit about um, kind of, chronic stress and kind of what you're seeing out there and what kind of things that you find um, people should be aware of or, or what are you seeing that some of the trends out there? Well, you know, the one thing that that's important to notice is that, um, I mean, any workplace, certainly in the world that we live today has its challenges. And we know that from the literature, there's certain factors that can impact psychological health and safety for sure. Um, but also in certain workplaces, like healthcare workplaces and some of the others, 
that you mentioned, there's another layer, there's another element to that. So in addition to those things um, that we've been talking about for years, the impact of, um, you know, the staffing issues and the workload, which has been sort of mounting for some time that impact, you know, healthcare environments particularly, there's the other layer on top of those environmental factors, which is just the nature of the work, mm-hmm. that being exposed to trauma and suffering has an impact. Um, there's a saying sort of in that trauma world from folks I've been learning from that being exposed to trauma and suffering and not being impacted, it's like being in water and not getting wet, that we as human beings will be impacted over a period of time. So we have the element of that piece, just the nature of providing care or witnessing these kinds of stories, you know, helping others in their most vulnerable time. But and also that's layered on top of the environmental factors, the workload, sometimes the politics, the um, behaviors that can arise as well, is sort of these things sort of layer on top of each other. And, you know, it's interesting that you say that, right? Because, uh, you know, myself kind of having worked in, you know, pretty frontline with acute situations, um, you have to be wired a certain way. I don't know if you'd agree with that. Like I know with a lot of... Um, police forces or nursing. I mean, you've been in the hospital. I've been worked a lot with hospitals also. Um, Most of the times people that are, I'm going to use the word attracted (laughs) to some degree, are wired a certain way and have a certain type of personality to be able to deliver, right? Like almost like a dead calm kind of take charge, right? Like, so if you're, if you're in crisis, you don't want your police officers to be really too well connected to his feelings when he's coming to your door or somebody that's putting on a fire. So we have certain expectations of them to deliver, obviously. And they're also attracted to some degree yeah. with, to that kind of um, environment, which is fantastic. However, to yeah. your point, it's the, it's the, not the short term, but it's the cumulative effect. So it's kind of like, I can do this. I'm very good at this. I love doing this. I love helping people. But how is it that, from your perspective, how do people start to notice um, when it kind of steps into the end of chronic kind of stress? Well, I think, and I think there's a couple of really good things to build on in terms of what you're sharing too. Like first, in terms of um, folks that get attracted to this kind of service work, for a lot of folks, it's more than a job, it's more than a career, it's a calling. And so people get attracted to these professions because they want to make a difference in some way. And, um, and, and to really have that impact, um, whether it's a police officer or whether it's a healthcare provider or a physician or a social worker, people want to make a difference. This is coming from mm-hmm. their heart. And, and so there's that aspect of who they are and the difference they really want to make and the way they want to make that difference in the world. And, and then sometimes it's the expectation to how certain professions are socialized as well. So physicians, for example, in some cases can be socialized that you need to have that sense of um, not being completely stoic, but that kind of creating that distance that somehow if I'm feeling the emotional impact of that work, that means that I'm weak in some way, where it's quite the opposite. We need to have that compassion in order to be effective in that therapeutic relationship. And it's not the feeling of the compassion that's the issue for us. It's how we're processing and integrating our human experiences. And so for some folks, some of the indicator can be that I'm starting to pull back in some way because there can be that comparison of what's going on internally for us with the external we see in others. And we think that others are doing okay, and they may or may not be. 
and I'm not, and and I might feel some some shame around that, or a sense that is something wrong with me, or I'm not good enough. But when I, but I'm having a human experience to these things that I'm witnessing that that are impacting me, whether it's chronically over a period of time, or if there's something that arises that's triggering because it reminds me of something. Like we're all very different. So one of those indicators can be. I'm pulling back, I'm isolating myself, or I'm not reaching out to help. And this is important because for many groups, I mean, physicians are one, but certainly many healthcare providers, those perceived social supports and accessing those social support, um, not only when we're distressed, but on a regular basis, is one of the most important protectors or resiliency factors in these kinds of environments. And right when we need to really reach out, connect, acknowledge how we're doing in a real heart-centered human, heart-to-heart connected way, for many folks, they can actually begin to withdraw, isolate, um, and pull back even within themselves. And, and then it becomes sort of that cumulative effect. And it's so, you're so right, right? I'm thinking about, I'm listening to you, and I think of, you know, when I, at the time I met you, I was consulting, so I was so much removed, and you, you know, you were still at the hospital, and, you know, 24-7 services, right, Ian? You know, emergency um, room nurses, they're dealing with stuff all the time. Physicians, you know, the police officers, the paramedics that bring in um, people all the time, the critical situations that they see, the firefighters. They're, they're constantly, when they go to work, it, you know, they're constantly, they have to be on, even if they're not on a call, right? They, to some degree, I, I say they vacillate um, to, I'm heightened to, I'm hypervigilant. And I think what you're talking about, hypervigilance is kind of not being able to disconnect and be able to focus on on kind of the day-to-day things like, you know, my partner, my children, my friends, my community, and all those things that you would normally be into versus kind of when you're withdrawing. Yeah, for sure. And there's like a number of factors that all sort of come together that can have that impact. I mean, the one factor is just the nature of the environment. And there's a couple of aspects of the nature of the environment, as mentioned earlier. The nature of the environment can include things like there's the political factors, there's the workload, there is, do I have impact on decisions that are important to me? Do I feel a sense of reward in the work that they, that I do? Am I seen as a valued contributor? Mm-hmm. But that those high demands, low control high effort, um, low reward environments. We know that in in and of itself is a risk for psychological safety. So the literature supports adverse health outcomes. So there's the nature of the environment. Then we Mm -hmm. layer on top of that, many of these folks work shift work. And there's a whole kinds of literature on the impact of shift work on our circadian rhythm and our sleep, our our cortisol levels, etc. So you now have that extra layer. And then even if we we're able to address some of those core workload factors, and many of those are long-term solutions in these industries in and of itself. We still have the layer of shift work, then we have the layer of trauma and suffering and, and witnessing on that piece. And so you sort of have the sandwich piece, and so then, then there's the piece about our own individual well-being and the importance of, of developing course and resiliency skills but in a non-blaming, shaming way. It's not saying that we are weak if we're not coping with this. It is that the environment will have this impact. And yes, it's important to address those environmental factors. And it's also important to recognize that the self-care, the resiliency skills, the intentionality about what's needed for the individual who is still in that environment to be well 
is also important. So like all of these things need to come together. So would you say then that um, how the environment sees the needs of the employees um, are vitally important to what kind of support they should offer them? So like, you know, with a firefighter, more than likely he or she knows that he's going to go out on a fire call maybe multiple times over a 12-hour shift. So if you have, a, say, a, mm -hmm. a fire station that's kind of really well aware and um, notices differences um, or a fire chief, they're going to make sure that, you know, people are generally on versus ones that are kind of oblivious. It's kind of the thing you do. Do you find that that's kind of a, a big difference in reference to um, offering support and what's good for, for the, say, the firefighter? Well, I mean, I, I, that's a really good point. I think that... Um, when we think of supports, we want to think all we want to think of those supports along that that continuum. So what are all the things we can do proactively? What are the things we do reactively? What are the things we do post you know so you have that sort of whole, whole continuum. And so and also there are things we can do organizationally and then around the team and the leadership styles, as well as helping the individual to develop resilience and well-being. You have to have all of those things in place. So, for example, um, certainly we need to have things like employee family assistance programs and other forms of support that staff can access in the way that they feel comfortable doing so on a regular basis. Of course, we want to have debriefing models if crisis happens to provide those kinds of supports as well. We also want to address culturally any concern around mental health and stigma so that folks feel safe and comfortable, one, recognizing signs and indicators and then reaching out for help. We want to increase the capacity of everybody in the workplace to recognize when we are struggling with each other. So coworkers are empowered to reach out and support coworkers. So it really is a multifaceted mm -hmm. and also want to look at those organizational factors. If there are cultural factors, if there are workload factors, if there are ways the staff are not fully engaged, then we want to shift those cultures to one where... We address workload. We help the staff to be more engaged in decisions that are important to them. We help staff to feel valued as their contributors. Those are the core psychological factors. We provide supports during crisis. We build strong, healthy teams and also help staff really develop core resiliency skills that any healthcare professional needs to have, must have, in order to, to navigate um, the, those types of challenging environments. And so when we talk about self-care, it needs to be in the context of that bigger picture in a non-blaming, shaming way. And sometimes self-care is more than bubble baths and chocolate. And I love bubble baths and chocolate. <laughs> some self-care is, there you go, sometimes self-care means doing things we may not want to do, like reaching out for help, like getting cardiovascular exercise 20 minutes three times a week. Um, like making healthy lifestyle changes, uh, those things are also important in terms of core skills that we want to develop and habits that we want to incorporate into our healthy lifestyles. So what are some of the core um, psychosocial factors that impact um, kind of healthcare professionals? What are some of the bigger things that people may struggle with, with short, say on short-term uh, claims? Do you know that? Well, we certainly know that, you know, long-term or claims related to stress are going up. And in healthcare, in some of the latest literature, about 54% of um, 
health-related disability claims are related to mental health-related reasons. And so that's a higher percent than the general population as a whole. It's a number that's doubled from about 20 years ago. And, and so it's going to be a combination of just the nature of the environment and certainly individual factors. And we know, you know, classically in the healthcare environment, they are high demand environments. They mm -hmm. are physically demanding, cognitively demanding, emotionally demanding environments, durations, deadlines, as well as the nature of witnessing trauma and suffering. So you've got the demands and the workload. Um, and often in many opportunities around the culture, the kinds of behaviors mm -hmm. that healthcare providers may be exposed to, things like harassment and violence and those kinds of behaviors from patients and families. So violence is also an issue or responsive behaviors that could be injurious to staff. So they're exposed to those kinds of things. So you have sort of those combinations of the health and safety kinds of things, like the psychological healthy kinds of things. And then what happens is the mental health starts to be impacted and we move to this place where we need the social supports, we need that, um, that self-care and those resiliency skills and those kinds of things, but we don't feel like it either. And that's the, you know, the double-edged sword is, you know, of, of mental health in those times when we most need to take care of ourselves and access those supports are often the times when we least feel like it. And so now we have this environment of folks who are, their, their nervous systems are out of balance, our autonomic nervous systems are way out of balance, and our, um, you know, that sympathetic overdrive is going on all the time, and we're not at our best in that state. That's just what happens to us as human beings, and so we're less able to feel compassion for ourselves and others. We're less able to regulate that nervous system because of the exposure to the environment. So we've got to find some health and balance around that, and then that gives people more capacity to step back and reflect and, and you know, do those things to be helpful. Because your mental capacity is a pivotal part of the job, so mm -hmm. you have to deliver. And like you said, you're you know um, you're 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 delivering. Um, you're dealing with the public. Um, you know, oftentimes I know when I walked into an emergency room here in Niagara, Erica, I'm expecting you know if my son's sick or you know whatever, if a family member's yeah. sick, I'm I'm heightened and I'm you know I know the business and still I'm but I'm I'm a you know I'm a consumer and you know. I'm, I'm having certain expectations of the triage person to the nurse, to the people, you know, the, the physicians that are seeing me or my family, those types of things. So I, I can see it from every angle and also having, um, you know, obviously been an executive with various hospitals. So the pressure is definite. You're so right. All those factors um, are happening all at once. And those healthcare practitioners um, have to be on. So if they're disconnected and then they have to go back in for a 12 hour shift, Mm -hmm. And they're, 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 like you said, their nervous system's overtaxed and they're not recognizing it. Um, obviously, that, that could be detrimental to them and obviously the organization also. Yeah, for sure. So with, um, now you talked a little bit about some of, you know, self-care and, you know, wellness and resilience. And talk a little bit about the programs that, you, that you've been involved with or that you offer that you know actually helps um, you know, healthcare practitioners, considering that they have, like you said, they're layered up. What is it? 54% you said yeah. uh, claims are related to mental health, right? So, and I often yeah. say mental health is on continuum, right? Um, we can be kind of, you know, a little bit out of sorts all the way to I'm managing, but I'm kind of holding on by a, by a fine thread. 
And then, yeah. you know, the next thing I'm knowing, I'm struggling to, you know, sleep properly or I'm struggling to, um, you know, get out and see my friends as much or those types of things. And, uh, you know, I've, I've talked a little bit about this when I was um, part of uh, a trauma team with the police. This is going back at the beginning of my career. Uh, I was a team of 13 and they had done, uh, you know, uh, PTSD um, assessment on all of us with the police because we were first responders to victims of crime. And on that unit, all of us showed higher levels, you know, um, or moderate levels of PTS, at least minimally, which is post-traumatic stress. And then there was actually one person on the team that was suicidal, right? Because again, what were we doing? We were constantly on, right? And, you'd, you know, you'd get, we'd get yeah. massive time off, which, which I couldn't fault that. Um, but of course, then you would go on and you would, you know, my very first call out was a suicide. Right. So here I am, 21 years old, um, you know, and, and I'm the eager, you know, psychotherapist, um, you know, first job, you know, those types of things. And it's like, wow, this is real, you know, yeah. and then the impact. And I still remember the call today, like it happened yesterday. And that's, you yeah. know, about 25, 27 years ago. So talk a little bit about some of the programs that you offer that you said, you know, is, is empirically validated and what you know works and what maybe sure. people listening that are thinking, you know what, they're speaking to me directly. <laughs> what, sure. what can they do? For sure. First, um, before I talk a little bit about the programs, one of the formulas for self-transformation, I wanted to share that because it forms um, a bit of a foundation for the philosophy, something that I was trained in my, uh, my training as in. Uh, moving into the world of psychotherapy in addition to healthy lifestyles and kinesiology, those kinds of things. But the formula is uh, awareness plus acceptance plus action equals transformation. And so the awareness is a little about what you're talking about. It's that self-awareness that we have of ourselves. And so tools like you've talked about, um, the, there's a variety of different tools that we can do to, to see how we're doing. There's a variety of different ways that we can build that capacity for self-awareness. So we can see ourselves, our own signs of indicators of when are struggling. What does that look like for us? What does that feel like for us? So we have an understanding of how the environment is impacting us, how our behaviors are impacting ourselves and others and how we're doing. So the capacity one to build self-awareness. The second is the acceptance. And the acceptance is another way of seeing self-compassion as well. And self-compassion is an important core practice and philosophy, particularly for healthcare providers who often give so much for to others and um, to the detriment of themselves. And self-compassion is not only a philosophy, there are specific things and practices that we can do to cultivate that sense of self-compassion with ourselves. Acceptance also is helping one to accept the nature of the circumstances, those aspects in our lives that we can't control but are impacting us so we can create some space for well-being with that. So the awareness puts the acceptance and the action is in the practical things we begin to do bit by bit to either shift our perspective, to bring better awareness, to build better skills, to build support. So there's the practical things that we do. So you want to be able to bring all those three things to, mm -hmm. together, the awareness, the acceptance, and the action as a, pra as a practice. And then when I work with clients, that might be one-on-one -on -one for folks that prefer that one-on-one -on -one where we set mutually or the client sets the goals that they want to work on and we help with that individualized plan of well-being. There's also group programs too. And, and the interesting and helpful thing about group is you have that tend and befriend and the sense that folks in the group understand each other and where they're coming from. And so different group programs that um, 
allow also the teaching of various skills. And so we get to develop some awareness and education. We get to support each other, but we also get to practice the different skills because there are specific things we can do that do make a difference. Learning, you know, deep breathing techniques, learning different visualization uh, processes, and other real skills that cultivate um, that sense of, you know, that buffer of protection around ourselves. So these are intentional practices that we get to learn and practice together over the period of time. So using these group programs. Uh, and there's a number of different ways. Mindfulness is certainly a core uh, tenant or a foundation for a lot of the work that I teach. But one doesn't have to subscribe to any particular, in particular ideology. They're all in sort of a non-secular sort of practical, actionable sort of way. So individuals and, and groups. So those are the kinds of things that I'm doing out there in the community. Um, I'm also privileged to teach a program called The Working Mind for the workplace that I'm in right now. And, and that's a program from the Mental Health Commission of Canada that's all about bringing awareness to the impact of stigma in the workplace, common language around mental health, and uh, practical things that we can do in the workplace. So in my workplace, I am privileged to be one of the facilitators that gets to deliver that to our healthcare providers. Uh, so whether it's at one's workplace or whether it's in a group or individual, um, there's just some of the ways that we can access ways of um, learning more about ourselves and the skills that can help us to be more healthful and well in the, in the environment that we are called to be in. Do you find that uh, in the healthcare uh, environments that the, is stigma being um, knocked down or is it still that people are struggling with it? Because I think, you know, you, um, people will be well-intentioned to say, I get it, right? Um, but when you're out doing these trainings, how, how do you find that people are receiving the elements of that it's, it's kind of part of something that's on the rise and we have to accept that. Or I often say like, you know, our, our ancestors used to use their muscles. So therefore they, they bruise them and, and tarnish them. So they, they would go off on, you know, things that are physically related. Now you and I, you think of what, you know, when we met 15, 17 years ago, it was always about using our brains. So it makes sense, right? Yeah. Um, that we're going to overuse that part of the muscle. So it's not a physical, but it's really a mental, emotional and psychological muscle. For sure. I mean, I, I know the, the classes that I've been teaching, a number of them, uh, especially over the last few months in a particular organization I work with, the, the conversation about stigma is a really important one. And uh, it's, a, it's a, um, a really thoughtful one that we have with, with the staff. Certainly stigma is still prevalent because a lot of those beliefs are unconscious and we don't necessarily see them in the same way. And sometimes I think the challenge is that as a society, we're learning to language things differently, whether it's stigma with mental health or discrimination that impacts a number of different groups of people. You know, a lot of folks are now getting the courage to say that, you know, these kinds of language or this kinds of, um, you know, these kinds of behaviors have been having this impact that folks might not have recognized was an impact. So we're talking a lot of the a lot about it. We're much more, I think, open these days with these conversations through social media and other, you know, campaigns and awareness campaigns. But it means that we're in this interesting time where for, for some folks, it's, it's like the courage is there to come forward. Other folks are like, yeah, this is a great conversation. And we always know for any group, we're, we're talking about stigma discrimination. The learning the new language for some groups is challenging. It's because it's like, what well, you know, I used to, 
me saying this used to be okay and now I can't say this anymore and and so there's mm. kind of this relearning and, and the way that I you know, I broach the conversation is to say it's really important that it's a non-blaming shaming conversation as we learn together about the impact that language can have and how to, to simply in the workplace be more kind um, to be more present with the impact that can have and and learn together about how to go forward in a way that helps to bring more awareness and more kindness and more compassion to, to all of us as we're learning, you know, the impact of, of stigma, stuff that we might not even thought was an impact unless we have lived experience. And so really facilitating that conversation in a non-blaming, shaming way has, has, um, has gone over you know, pretty well. But, you know, to, you, to your point, yeah, certainly it, it's still there because it, it's unconscious. You know, and, and I, I would think that, and I, I think of uh, when I consult also, that element about equipping managers with the knowledge uh, to be able to, to deal with mental health-related concerns in a de delicate way so that they are not missing vital things, yeah. right? So it's not, you know, Roxanne's not, you know, performing because she doesn't want to, but how to kind of intervene in a kind, gentle, respectful way if you're recognizing something's going on with someone else, right? So it's, it's you For know, sure. those core, those core, core or value, you know, soft skills are so, so very key because, yeah. you know, gone are the days where it's kind of like, you know, just do your job. <laughs> if, the, if right. I'm not following through, okay, it's about having that deep strategic conversation to figure out really what, what is going on? Am I struggling because of skill development? Am I struggling because of the culture? Am I struggling because I'm having a tough time on the team? Is it struggling because, you know, I'm ha have a sick child at home or there's so many variables, but you know, like you said, destigmatizing it to say, we all can, we all can get there. We all can get there. Right. Yeah. And I think and the that's more that we start to recognize that, you know, I think a kindness and gentleness, like to your point, that compassion as human beings uh, makes it a little bit easier for us to relate. Yeah, for sure. And, and this is a, that's a really important conversation that um, I've been having regularly with uh, the folks that have been participating in the programs. And it can be as simple as if you notice that I was your coworker and I was struggling, that you could say, hey, you know, you know, Erica, you just don't seem like yourself these days. You know, how are you doing? And it's not mm -hmm. that we have to be each other's counselors. We don't need to offer advice. We don't need to solve problems. It's just like, hey, I see you, and, and you don't quite seem like yourself. You know, do you want to go for a walk? Do you need a bit of a break? Have you thought about talking to your manager? So we can make suggestions with resources without telling folks what to do, but it really is a key that we notice that we're struggling, and that sense of team support is one of the most important buffers that is protective against occupational stress is that support of the team. And the team mm -hmm. will often see things in each other that we don't see in ourselves that can be um, a helpful opportunity to bring the awareness of the need for support. And, you know, the other reality that if we're not doing well in the workplace, particularly a health care workplace or any workplaces where our decisions have real impact, on the work we're doing others and in, in, in healthcare, it's a, it's a pretty profound impact. If we start to make some mistakes or errors, those mistakes have a far reaching implications. So we want to be able to step in in a compassionate, clear way to protect the reputation of the person that's struggling, to help that ripple effect to be minimized and to help the person to get the support that they need early uh, so they can get back to doing the good work that they're, that they want to do. And uh, so we can be each other's eyes and ears and supports. For sure. So for anybody listening that um, 
they know they're kind of struggling, you know, and, you know, they're thinking, what are some things that I, little things that I can start doing, say this week, Erica, let's say I work in kind of a 24 seven service, you know, and uh, I recognize I am isolating a bit. What kind what, what, what are some mini steps that you might suggest that somebody like that could do? For sure. And, you know, one of the most important things is social support. So it's perceived social supports and accessing the social supports. And with healthcare providers particularly, there's something about the support of the team, again, that's really protective because when we share what's going on with each other, we get it in a way that family and friends don't uh, because they don't live the life of a trauma nurse or a um, even a transcriptionist who is at home and, and reading the stories or a, a police officer. So the peers understand things in a way that our families don't. Our families are wonderful, can be wonderful support um, sources of support as well. Um, it's just that in the workplace, you want to connect with each other. And so one very simple practice is a reflective narrative practice, which means it might be saying, hey, you know, Roxanne, I had a really um, tough experience the other day. Can we meet for a cup of tea? And I want to be able to share what's going on. And then I share with you in a very specific way. And it's not like you're going to give me advice or, you know, um, try to solve the problem for me, but I might come with my story and you're just going to be your active witness witness and I just share that story and it's not like I'm you know you know venting or gossiping or that sort of thing I'm just saying hey that was a really hard day when that patient uh, family members were yelling at me and I felt really overwhelmed and I felt like I was experiencing a sense of you know disrespect and these feelings came up for me so I'm using my eye language and telling my story because what that does it takes it out of my nervous system and it brings it out here where it can be integrated in the whole and some of the research shows that when I share with my colleague who I have that heart-to-heart -heart connection with, there isn't that experience of, vic of vicarious trauma there is when we witness something. There's, there's a protective effect with our peers that get it. So one of the most important things is build your social supports and connect with each other in a real way more often. Another simple thing is just throughout the day, uh, do what you can to bring a little bit of relaxation to the body. That's mm -hmm. a few deep breaths. Um, there's a cool practice I just actually learned recently called wet noodle. You just imagine your wet noodle. You know, they might do that a hundred times a day. Like, like my son used to do when he was like, not wanting to do when he was like, three yeah, or four. just like that. Your kid, like, oh, just kind of flops on the floor. You might not flop on the floor. <laughs> that kind of idea, because whether it's a quick body scan in, in the moment and, yeah. and take a breath if it's just that, that wet noodle, we're trying to, or the aim is to regulate that autonomic nervous system because it's hard to anchor trauma physically in the body when the body's relaxed. You can't have stress in a relaxed body. So that ongoing practice of taking a breath of, of um, you know, those quick wet noodle practices to bring a little relaxation in the moment. Of course, reaching out for social support and expressing how we're doing in a very intentional way. If you don't have someone yet, you feel comfortable doing so, then journal it, write it out, mm -hmm. um, because that helps to reduce the cortisol and the stress hormones. Uh, cardiovascular exercise, that's one of the things that's critical important and it doesn't have to be like a spinning class and you know unless you love spinning that's <laughs> not my thing <laughs> a little bit too hard for me but if you love spinning that's great but it could be going for a walk three times a week for 20 minutes that's really important or dance or you know that kind of thing whatever it is that gets you moving so those kinds of things uh, get home at the end of the day and put on a funny movie find reasons to laugh again it's really important 
Uh, so those are some of those key things. There's other things we can do, but connecting with our team, our social support, uh, getting for those walks, fresh air and sunshine, connecting with na nature. And some, are, you know, some of the areas that I've been working with also have some creative things. Um, there's an organization called Paws for Wellness, the therapy dogs. And so um, in our wellness program, they bring the therapy dogs to the staff. And the staff love them because anything that makes us go, aww, <laughs> it, it actually releases oxytocin in our body that feel good. And so really connecting with our pets and our kids and our children and, and you know, the therapy dogs is something that I know the staff where I work really enjoy as well. So it doesn't have to be like, okay, I'm going to have to do all of these things and I don't have time for it. Social supports, take a breath, drink a little bit more water that flushes cortisol out of the body. And there's another formula that a colleague of mine taught. When we're overwhelmed, the formula again is WTF. WTF moments are walk, talk, flush moments. And it <laughs> I just was means something, particularly I was something else. I, was thinking, okay. I know. Everybody thinking something else. Okay. Walk, walk, walk talk, talk, flush. And flush, which is water. And flush. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Especially after within 24 hours of a, a chronic or um, or sort of a, an event that's very stressful, an overwhelming day or something traumatic, talk it out with someone that you trust, go for a walk, even if it's 20, 25 minutes, get that cortisol out of the body, drink a little bit of extra water. You don't have to go to town on the water, but get your eight glasses. That is flushing out the cortisol in the body because you want to regulate that nervous system that helps to reduce the impact of the trauma and the stress on the body. So those are a few things we can implement right away. Those are those amazing tips, right? Like mm -hmm. I think even if you're not in a you know a, a, a healthcare setting, just with workplaces being that much more stressful yeah. and um, the expectations being on the rise, with most employees having to do more or you know whatever role you're in, just to be able you know to to take a little bit of time. And I think unfortunately most people believe it's it's a spinning class or a Pilates class or whatever, but it really could be little snippets of things that yeah. you know you could do often throughout the day for a minute or two that helps you, like you said, reconnect to your body so your mind and body gets in alignment again so the body doesn't carry the weight of, of all, all the tension, like you said, and the cortisol that uh, comes with it. Erica, this has been, uh, been very yeah. fascinating as usual. I know you and I can talk for hours um, about things. So for people that might want to reach out to you, work with you, um, tell them where they can reach you and... Um, you know, if, if they wanted to do some one-to-one -one or if they, I know you do some group uh, coaching programs where, where they can reach you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they can reach me at ericacasperson.org. So ericacasperson.org is my, um, my website. A lot of that may be updated coming soon, but you'll still find me um, there. And that'll, that'll be a place that you can reach me in terms of um, a little bit more information, specifically in the healthcare world, the work that I'm doing there. And uh, there's a contact info, though, contact info there, folks, would like some more information. Awesome. So, uh, again, you know, um, there's so much that I gained today. And obviously, this is my world around talking about uh, resilience. And uh, the one that I'm going to remember is walk, talk, flush. <laughs> I'm going to remember that, awesome. you know, if, if people can implement that uh, just in any, when you find yourself getting stressed, um, you know, it helps to put the prefrontal cortex back on. Like Erica says, you can't say, you, the brain doesn't know the difference when the event is done. And the only person to do that is you by connection, you know, peer support, 
talking, writing, um, watching something funny. So to, to really think about implementing something, even if it's something small, one or two times a day. So again, thank you for tuning in. Uh, if you're needing any information on myself, I'm Roxanne Durhodge with Authentic Living with Roxanne, and you can reach me at roxannedurhodge.com. So take care, everyone, and we will chat again with you soon. Thanks for tuning in to Authentic Living with Roxanne, creating the space for positive, healthy change. Roxanne is a keynote speaker, psychotherapist, and coach. To work with Roxanne, visit roxannederhage.com slash blueprint. We'll see you next time on Authentic Living with Roxanne.